tableau, and then we start? Is that what's supposed to happen? Okay. <laughs> Great. Welcome to DanceCast. I'm your host, Seema Belmar. Today's episode is a live recording of a conversation between Bumi Patel and myself about the state of dance criticism today. This conversation was part of ODC Theater's Art and Ideas event, which we called To Review or Not to Review. Bumi B. Patel is the artistic director of Patel Dance Works and is a queer Desi artist activist who creates intersectionally feminist performances from a trauma-informed, social justice-oriented perspective. So Bumi is not only a dance writer, but a dancer and choreographer herself. Bumi and I travel in the same dance writing circles. They're very small circles. She recently guest edited a couple of issues of In Dance. She writes regularly for Life as a Modern Dancer blog. And we have a really lively conversation about the state of dance criticism and our enormous audience. We wink, 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 asked excellent questions. So I hope you all enjoy this edited conversation. You can hear, no, you can see the entire event on ODC Connect. Don't know what ODC Connect is? Well, I'll tell you real quick. It's a curated collection of digital content on a customized video on-demand platform. The original library includes featured dance films, archival works from the company and ODC theater artists, behind-the-scenes documentaries, dance and fitness classes for all ages and abilities, cutting-edge short films from our youth and teen programs, unique family-friendly activities, and interviews with artists, instructors, and health experts, including me and Boomy, the super dance writer experts. We don't really believe in expertise, but you know what I'm saying. Find out more at odc.dance slash connect. Whether you watch us or listen to us, we are happy you're here. Well, here we are, Boomy. Hi, Thank Siva. you for coming. Thank to... you for inviting me. <laughs> sure. I mean, <laughs> let's, we've, we talked about, you and I, uh, how few dance writers there are. More specifically, we tried to think of dance writers of color that's right. And we couldn't come up with anyone. That's what happened. Yes, in the Bay Area, who were local. So we're going to start by introducing ourselves in our dance writing capacities. All right, so I'm just going to go first really quick. I started writing dance criticism in the 90s. I was a, the first dance-specific arts writer intern at the San Francisco Bay Guardian because there were arts internships and it was like you can write about visual art or music or whatever and they didn't even mention dance. I was like can I just write about dance and they said sure. That's how that started and because this conversation is a lot about reviewing and whether or not one should review to review or not review I wrote a lot of reviews in that period and I regret most of them. At the time I totally accepted the position of critic as an authority and being evaluative. Even though I always thought that I was writing for dancers and choreographers and for the art form, I still had absorbed that like a little bit that snarky movie critic voice. Mm -hmm. um, and I look back on it and it's horrible and I was called out on it a few times and had some really interesting conversations with people about that and that started to change the way I thought about writing dance criticism. And then in 2009 I wrote a piece called I think Disobedient Dance Criticism where I was just like, I am very close to this artist. We are like best friends. It was Randy Pouvet. And uh, I am going to write from that position of intimacy and not pretend that I have any kind of critical distance at all. And that sort of launched a change in how I wrote about dance. And then when I wrote the in, uh, the in practice column for In Dance for several years, it was very much in relationship with artists. 
always sending the writing to the artist before I would publish anything, which I have a, an art critic friend who was like, you do what? <laughs> you let them have say in what gets published about their work? And I was like, yeah, that's what I do. And now here I'm the podcaster in residence at ODC and it's uh, been an interesting journey to think about talking to artists and what they want to talk about and then switching that to more thematic concerns and yeah, that's my basic dance critic journey and I want to hear yours. So I'm going to age myself. In the 90s I was uh, writing short stories um, with my sister about taking hot uh, air balloon rides <laughs> on green construction paper. Nice. Um, so basically you're aging me, but I get it. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> I'm, good. I'm aging myself a little bit. Uh, I feel like I'm in a kind of weird in-between space as like a current practicing artist and like a current dance writer. Like they both kind of run parallel to each other. It's not like, oh, well, I, I used to have a movement practice and now I only write, or I used to write, now I have a movement practice. They're very, very much together so I often end up in this weird not weird I mean maybe it's a little bit weird but this position of reviewing and being reviewed um, maybe not simultaneously sometimes simultaneously in terms of journey I did my undergraduate in dance and creative writing thinking I was gonna go into journalism mm -hmm. and I just fell very much in love with dance I got a master's in dance and then I moved to New York City and I was in this program where we had to go to four to five shows every single week. Mm -hmm. that, was, that was the assignment of the program. So I was literally Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday at a show every single week. So I did what any millennial does. I started a blog. <laughs> <laughs> Don't look it up. It's not available on the internet anymore. Um, but I started a blog and I was like, how do I just write about the things that I'm seeing? Because I'm intaking so much information, I need to like, put something out and like process it. And none of it's very good, right? That's okay. It was a practice rather than a product. Um, but I enjoyed doing it. So then I moved to the Bay. Um, I was doing a little bit more writing. I got connected with um, Jill Randall, who started asking me to um, write for her blog, which then just kind of led to other, other gigs with other publications. But now I kind of exist at that intersection of like, I do a little bit of academic writing. I do some dance criticism writing. I do some non-dance criticism writing, but it has to do with dance. It's about dance, but it's not criticizing dance. <laughs> I do a little bit of performative writing sometimes in there, and it all just makes a bunch of overlapping circles and a Venn diagram where I'm in the middle. You know, it's funny, I didn't even say, because again, it's just, it does speak to generations possibly, that I was also dancing mm -hmm. and choreographing a little while I was being a dance critic, you know, but at the time I just, I compartmentalized mm -hmm. mostly and didn't think about it like that someone might write something snarky about me. I was just like, why would they? But I did do an MFA in dance precisely to just get on that side of choreography mm -hmm. and to realize how difficult it is, uh, impossible and hard. And I wanted to have that, that more empathetic relationship to yeah. it, like how hard it is to make a dance. When I applied to graduate school for the doctoral program at Cal in performance studies, my paper was on my favorite dance criticism scandal, which is when uh, Joan Acachella, who was the New Yorker dance critic up until very recently, wrote a review of Terry O'Connor's work. She did not write a mean review, but she categorized him as a downtown artist, and he got so mad and wrote this amazing scathing response in uh, 
website that, that was called the Dance Insider. So that no longer exists. It, Paul Ben Itzak, I think, was the editor. Mm -hmm. So the Dance Insider was articles by dancers, right? For dancers, by dancers for dancers kind of thing. And he was just like, shredded her. But his main point was, if you would just have talked to me about the work, like you don't understand it, you didn't get it, you should be talking to me. And then all these critics came out, including Deborah Jowett, who were like, no, you know, we don't have to get it. We don't have to know what you meant to do. Like our, it's our prerogative to have our own experience. Right, so I wrote this paper to get into graduate school, it was like my writing sample, yeah. where I talk about that whole kerfuffle, and I ask the question, is it important for a dance writer to be a dancer? Like, no one asks that question about visual arts. Like, mm -hmm. you could be a stick figure artist only and write about Jackson Pollock all day long, or whoever you want, George O'Keefe. You can not be able to play a single instrument and write about classical music, but there's something about dance and this feeling that certainly some dancers and choreographers have that, why can't the writer have some insider knowledge? It feels mm -hmm. really important. And I came around to just feeling like it is important. It's not necessary, but it does offer a perspective. Yeah. So you were mentioning that your dancer choreographer helps you in a certain way or offers you something. Can you speak yeah. more specifically to like, what does it offer you as a dance writer? What, what's happening when you're in that seat looking on? Yeah, I feel like I am looking for process Sometimes um, I feel like I'm looking for the mechanics of what is happening on stage so that I can understand what the choreographer, what the performers are trying to get at. And this kind of ties in a little bit to process, like maybe related to me being a choreographer, maybe not. But I had a, I had a professor who said, it's really easy to approach all of the texts that we're gonna look at in this class very critically particularly when we're looking at things that were written in the 70s, in the 80s, in the 90s. It's really easy to just say, they were wrong. Mm -hmm. We're in 2022 now, they're wrong. They don't know what they're talking about. And she said, can we instead take the perspective of critical generosity? Mm. Can we instead be critical and generous at the same time so that like, we understand the context in which this is happening? We are giving them our, she didn't use the phrase benefit of the doubt, but like taking what they're saying and trying to really see what they mean by it. What is this artist like trying to explain to us about something? What mm -hmm. are they trying to express to us about this topic? And can many things exist at the same time? Can their vantage point about this topic and my vantage point about this topic and the person who's sitting next to me's vantage point about this topic, can they all exist together mm -hmm. and all be okay? That really comes into the practice, like mm -hmm. trying to keep that critical generosity at the forefront, which is why I think, and this is something we've talked about before, a lot of my like dance criticism or dance review ends up being a lot of questions. Yes, we were talking about this difference between criticizing and questioning that we both view asking questions of a work and of an artist as a generous act mm -hmm. and as an invitation to dialogue and an invitation to expanding the discourse around mm -hmm. dance but not every artist feels that way and yeah. responds that way. They feel the questions as criticism. And we were talking about how, you know, the Liz Lerman critical response is all about asking these kinds of questions of an artist to get them to find a way to, you know, articulate what it is they're doing to be clearer, which is a feedback session. The review is, doesn't tend to be thought of as a feedback phenomenon, but I think we both do think of it that way. Yeah. And this is where the question 
has arisen, like, well, if artists don't necessarily think of it that way, what are we doing? Right. How do we go forward with writing reviews? And why do they matter? How are they being received? Do they matter? Do they matter? <laughs> right. Because we talked about the fact, at least in the Bay Area, that you know a review is not going to get people in seats, usually, if it's a one weekend run. Right. right? And even if you do stick a review in between a two weekend run, I, you know, I don't think they function so much that right. way. I don't know how much they help with grants anymore. I don't really know. Other than like documenting a moment and getting into dialogue and expanding the discourse, I'm not sure yeah. what they serve. Is the social currency of a review still as valuable as it has been in the past? Mm -hmm. I don't know. And is it different in the Bay compared to other parts of the country? You know, we were talking about the New York Times, for example, and their turnaround is really fast. You know, so someone could go see a show, go see a preview on a Wednesday, publish the piece on Friday morning, and potentially, maybe, who knows, use that as a marketing piece to get people to come to the show Friday, Saturday, Sunday matinee. Mm -hmm. We don't have that kind of turnaround here, so then does it hold currency to have a piece of writing from someone that you may or may not agree with published two, three, four weeks later? I don't know. A question was asked of us by text, and this is Jill Randall, who is the publisher and editor of Life is a Modern Dancer, where we both publish reviews and previews, and I mean, it's an incredible blog actually because it's also artist statements like hundreds at this point of yeah. artists writing about themselves in answer to questions Jill asks. It's an incredible resource uh, for dance, a real document that is very generous and caring toward the form. But she asked as a publisher and editor, she asks whether or not she should publish a review if an artist hasn't asked for it. Because artists often come to her and say, hey, you know, can you get someone to write about my show? Or she'll reach out to an artist and be like, oh, you know, I'd love to send someone to review your show. And then if she doesn't hear back, does she not uh, do the review? And so she brought it up as a question of consent, the review as requiring consent, mm -hmm. which blew my mind. I was like, oh, gosh, I never thought of it that way. And so it made me think about, well, you mentioned, and you can talk about this, about artist agency in this case. Mm -hmm. And then also if you can talk about what artists have asked you to do recently as a dance writer? The piece of artist agency there is, I think that asking an artist, do you want someone to come and review your show? Like that does feel like a really important question and it does allow an artist to say yes. It allows an artist to say yes, as long as this person is within my identity categories, as long as this person has maybe not embodied knowledge, but any kind of knowledge about the form that I'm presenting. <laughs> um, or no, no, I, I am making this work for X, Y, or Z reasons. There does not need to be a written document about it. And so I do think that's important. And the flip side of it <laughs> is if you don't hear a response from an artist, it is this kind of precarious situation of, well, it would be nice to get to, you know, like have someone write about it, but do we just let it go? Like, okay, we didn't hear anything. We let it go. Mm -hmm. Maybe another time, maybe another show. But then to the other question about things that, that artists have come to ask me to do. So I think that in, like, in the Bay in particular, there's not a singular outlet or like one or two outlets for dance writing. You know, like I, I lived in New York for a little while, you lived in New York. I feel like a lot of people were like, okay, the Village Voice, the New York Times, the New Yorker, 
Maybe there are a couple of others, mm -hmm. right? Those are the outlets. Those are where the dance writing goes. And here it's kind of dispersed a little bit more. You know, there's the um, SF Arts Monthly, where it's usually just like a really short preview about something. It's not really a review. Chronicle sometimes has dance reviews. There are digital publications, Stance on Dance, and yeah, things yeah. like that, but yeah. And so what has happened is I have had artists reach out and say, I know you write about dance, can you come and write about this piece? And I was like, oh, okay, I have some questions. How much are you paying me? What do you want me to do with it? <laughs> Sometimes the artist will say like, okay, well, here's the commission fee, um, and then I want you to submit it to X, Y, and Z as potential like outlets. And sometimes they'll say, I just want it as a document for how someone is viewing my process. Because of the way that I write in this like questioning format, ends up sort of being this like dramaturgical document where it's sort of like, okay, I'm like coming in, I'm not in the process with you. And I'm not there from the beginning, but I just come in and I'm like, okay, I don't know what's going on here, but here are some questions that I have. One time the artist was like, this is great. I'm just gonna hold on to this and maybe I'll make a zine about the, <laughs> about the whole process at some point. Um, and in, in that process, the artist had someone who was sketching during the show, maybe had someone who was engaging in some other visual art medium, like maybe painting. And there was also a photographer who was there more for an artistic purpose than a documentation purpose. Mm -hmm. And then I had another artist who was like, oh, I don't want to do anything for the, with this. I just wanted feedback on the process because this was step one or phase one and we have phases two and three in the next three years. At first, when it first happened, because I was sort of like, oh, okay, this artist is paying me money to write about their work. How critical can I be of their work? <laughs> like, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Mm -hmm. And then I, like, I turned in a piece and the artist came back and was like, you're asking such good questions. Like, I want more of this. Mm -hmm. um, and so I felt like I had a little bit more permission to, to be like, okay, well, I'm asking these questions about this section because here's where it's not working. Mm -hmm. Here are the ways in which it's not working because what I'm reading in your program is not matching up to what is actually happening in the piece. Like where is the disconnect for you? Yeah, and so I feel like it's been kind of like a, like a weird journey to navigate through. Like what do you do when an artist comes to you and is like, I want you to write about my work without feeling the pressure of like, okay, I, I guess I can do that for you, but are you gonna be happy with the thing that I write? Right. Do I need to be really particular about what I say? And maybe that's just a conversation I need to start having with artists when they reach out. Well, yeah, and I'm sure you do. I mean, I'm sure you have some yeah. communication happening yeah. before you just start writing all kinds of stuff. <laughs> but that brings us to the amazing Elizabeth Zimmer <laughs> piece. Uh, mm -hmm. So Elizabeth Zimmer is a longtime dance critic for The Village Voice. And it seems like, you know, every 10 years or so, she writes a piece about the death of dance criticism. It's like, it's dead. She has like a complete flip out about it. And um, it's funny. And so the last one was 2021, November. But what's fascinating, I'm gonna read a little piece of it. What's fascinating about this is she received an email from a quote, venerable producing organization in New York City, whose shows I've covered often over the past 25 years. And she withholds the name respectfully. I'll just do my, oh, it's video, scare quotes. Uh, I'm not just doing a podcast where I have to like be like, and now I'm gesturing with my elbow. Okay. Um, <laughs> she said that 
they issued a, quote, transparent press policy designed, it appears, to protect performers from critics. So I already love this. Like, the critic is like the lion, and the performer is like, lamb. And so in this email she received, it asks, quote, writers to, quote, acknowledge race bias as part of their review, along with ability, disability status. It instructs them to treat the art and artists with respect in their language and descriptions, treating their own words as opinion and not fact, avoiding body shaming, misgendering, and assumptions about cultural, ethnic, or racial backgrounds. It points out that in a performance with many parts, all work should be acknowledged, not mentioning an artist and their work is an erasure. Okay, so she writes a little more and then she goes, and I quote, wait, what? Hello? Um, no, just no. <laughs> she was like, what? You know, how dare there be any kind of block or any kind of restriction on how I'm going to go forward. She doesn't recognize that all they're mostly saying there is that for the last bazillion years of dance criticism, it has been racist, it has been biased, it has been body shaming, it has been all these things. If you're going to do that, we don't want you to write about us, right. which seems totally legit and fair. When I read this, I thought, how could Zimmer and others, because then uh, Marina Harse also said dance criticism was dying. Like a week later, another article came out. Like, I was like, if it's dying, why are there all these articles about it? It seems like it's alive and well. But, um, you know, the death of print media and all that stuff. But it really just made me think that, like with every other white person's reaction to being asked to be a better human being, right. the not every other, but the, a very common response is like, I want to be free to be a jerk if I want to be a jerk. Yeah. That's really what it seems to come down to as opposed to how can I find a way to engage with this work that isn't offensive and yeah. upsetting. So I talked to Gerald Cassell about this a lot, um, this idea of white landlordship <laughs> and white ownership over everything, <laughs> right? Yeah. So there's this idea, I can go into any space as a white person and own it. Mm -hmm. I don't need to know anything about West African dance. I can go in and own it by writing a review about it, and my criticism is the gospel. I don't need to know anything about Bharatanatyam, but I can watch it and I can have ownership over my opinion. And it feels like this, this uh, institution is saying you can't do that. You can't just claim that you have ownership over something that you may or may not understand. By all means, write about it. And like, okay, say you don't understand what's going on on stage. That's fine. But you can't just walk in with the entitlement of, I know everything about this. Mm -hmm. And her response is sort of like, how dare they? Oh, yeah. How dare they think that I don't know everything? Mm -hmm. And that's what you were talking about, coming in and not knowing anything and writing a review. Mm -hmm. You were referring to the Gia Curlis review of Dance yeah. Africa and then Charmaine Wells' response. Yeah, so this 2017 article, I wrote down the title so I wouldn't forget. Um, Dance Africa excels with tradition, colon, why go beyond, question mark. <laughs> Stop right there in <laughs> tradition, please. <laughs> Don't do anything that makes me not understand what's happening. Yes, go on. Yeah, and I, <laughs> this, ugh, this review made me feel very icky. The title probably makes everyone feel icky because it just, it completely demonstrates an entitlement to what traditional African dance should look like, what sort of pigeonhole dance Africa belongs in. And it gives this like, don't get too big for your britches. Don't try to make contemporary dance when we already know you're good at this one thing. You may not go outside of this one thing that you're good at. 
And so Charmaine Wells responds, strong and wrong on ignorance and modes of white spectatorship in dance criticism. And goes through this, this idea of how like whiteness and white supremacy imbues this entitlement to white critics to come in strong and to say, no, you're wrong. I have no context for your cultural tradition. I have no idea what's happening in your area of the dance world, but you're wrong. I've decided. Um, and now we both will never be allowed to write for the New York Times. <laughs> <laughs> it's over. <laughs> I, don't yeah. think, I don't think they're going to hire me. Me anyway. neither. Me neither. Um, mm -hmm. But um, Wells starts with this great quote from Elio Pomare, which I wrote down because I love it. Um, in my opinion, artists don't need critics or reviews. A reviewer can easily hurt an artist through bias or worse, through ignorance. And I feel like ignorance is so often invisible, particularly like when we live in a like white supremacist structure, the ignorance of having the ability to say, I have no idea what this form is. Mm -hmm. I have no idea what's happening in this contemporary moment in this form is just like reinforcing this like white ownership thing. Yeah, and it's making me think of this other problem with dance, which is concert dance, broadly construed. What do they call it? The bastard stepchild of the arts or something like that. <laughs> there's a way that we try to get audiences in, in, there's two ways in a way. One, by trying to educate, right? Dance appreciation and program notes and here's the thing and look how it's made and really helping yeah. people to get that. And I think that's helpful. But then there's this also like, you don't have to understand. Mm -hmm. You can come in and have your own experience, right? But that's what's dangerous. Yeah. Because depending on how people claim their own experience, they can do more or less harm right. responding to what they're seeing. Yeah. Which this, I think, mm -hmm. kind of circles back to that question of artist agency. Yeah. Because I feel like there are times where, like I have made things as an artist and at a certain point have been like, I don't think I care if this is legible. And the, with those pieces, I'm like, I don't actually care if anybody writes about this because I don't know that I care that it's legible. Right. For whom the work is being made about and for, I think I've done the work of legibility. So then if I can't mm. find those people to write about the work, does it really matter what somebody who can't read the dance thinks? Right. Who is the work for? I, I remember at some St. Mary's class I asked choreographers, who do you make dances for? And the most common answer is everybody. Like, I want my dances to reach everybody. And I'm always like, not possible. It's helpful to know that exactly yeah. to have agency around like who you want to respond right. to your work. Um, and I was just talking with Emily Hansel and her dancers and she had asked me, you know, hey, can I be on the podcast? Which I'm always like, if anybody wants to be on the podcast, hear ye, hear ye, come and tell me. And nobody tells, nobody, nobody writes to me or calls me. But she did. And we made it happen because we came up with a conversation we wanted to have. Mm -hmm. And that just meant that she knew what I did. Mm -hmm. And so it made sense for her, to her, to have a conversation with me specifically. Mm -hmm. Right? And I think a lot of it is like, can somebody, anybody please write about my work? Can mm -hmm. I just please get some kind of press? I think that artists, they're close to their work and it does feel personal and it, mm -hmm. it is personal. And so it's silly to think that there's going to be some kind of objective, like cool stance away right. from it that can happen. And when you were talking about whiteness, I was always also like, for the audience who doesn't know, like dance criticism has been white, white people in this country. And it's been first white men and then it transitioned to white women. And it has been heavily dominated by white women. One of my chapters in my dissertation is about Bill T. Jones's relationship with his white female critics 
and how he keeps trying to create a call and response relationship with them and they keep saying shut up over and over again and it's been his like lifelong practice and you couldn't believe you look at dance critics association meetings all these different things he comes up it's not just the arlene croce affair right, <laughs> right which for people who don't know where she wrote about his work without seeing it i don't have to see this work because i already know what it is which is just like the craziest thing anybody's ever said or done oh actually louis horst i think he reviewed paul taylor and just wrote a right. blank it was just a blank nothing and then Louis Horst, right. which actually I think is hilarious. To be honest, I kind of love that. Is there another, anything else we didn't touch upon before we turn it to the mob that is furious <laughs> about what we've been talking about? You know, I, did, I wrote something down um, about the way that I do criticism that didn't come up in oh, yeah. practice. And it, there is this critical generosity. Um, but I think about this with dance writing. I think about it with like my work as an activist. I think about it as in my work as a choreographer and like my work as an educator. All of it comes from the softest place of me. I have written reviews of people's work and then heard from other people that they were very unhappy with it. And that's okay, they can be unhappy with it. And I think you do this too, it comes from this like soft place of like maybe wanting to understand, maybe wanting to like give voice to things that are happening, maybe like tying what's happening here to what lineages this is coming mm. from. Like who are the ancestors that are being called upon to bring this work into realization. And I feel like that's not talked about enough. And I feel like that is a very particular, like I am a queer woman of color thing that I do. Mm. I like don't play the power struggle thing mm. that I feel like happens in white dance criticism. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. And I mean, I definitely feel that I do that now, mm -hmm. but I did not do it in my 20s. In my <laughs> 20s, I was mean. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I didn't think I was mean. I thought I was like the dancer's critic. And then I looked back, I knew there were three really bad ones. I processed one with the choreographer, we are friends now. I did not process the other two with the other folks, and that's okay. But I knew they were mad because I heard about it from the community, which I love about this yeah. community. Like I went to some event and people came up to me like, mm, half this room hates you now. <laughs> I was like, okay. But even the ones that weren't mean still had this authoritative mm -hmm. thrust that I like didn't even recognize in myself yeah. and would never at the time have thought about it as a, as a whiteness thing. Because as a Jewish person, even though I know I have skin privilege, I couldn't even claim, mm -hmm. like, I'm like, how can a Jew claim white supremacy when, like, that's what Nazis are? You know what I mean? Like, it didn't compute right. at the time. Now I get it. But I, I think that's really beautiful and a beautiful place to rest and sit with, to, mm -hmm. like, let folks know that we love the form. Mm -hmm. We would never be doing this because it is not lucrative um, in any way to, to work. But I like think dancers and choreographers are the greatest of human beings. Mm -hmm. I really do. But does yeah. anybody here have a question for Boomi or for me or for both of us? Or a comment? <laughs> or a thought? A thought. A feeling. An anecdote. And Greg told me to repeat it and I'll try more or less. The question is that it seemed like when I was talking, there was a little bit of a contradiction between what I said about dance criticism being alive and well, because there were people claiming it's dead and they're always claiming that, and the fact that people want reviews but they're not getting them. And then the third part was related to what Boomi was saying about artists asking her to write about them, that if this writing is happening, that somehow maybe it's not connecting, like that the dancer choreographer communities and the dance writing community or the, or the phenomena are not meeting somewhere. Mm -hmm. The terrain is shifting, and so that's why we originally said this was called to review or not to review, because it's really that, that 
genre feels like, or that form feels like it's in crisis, truly mm -hmm. is in crisis now. Not like crisis, like, oh no, the review's dying, like maybe it should die. Mm -hmm. That's the question. But these other kinds of dance writing, I think, are happening a lot, especially with the digital world. And Kate mm -hmm. Mattingly is someone to read. She wrote her dissertation, and maybe a book will happen, articles about the history of dance criticism, and and then the digital sphere and what it has afforded dance as a field. I would agree that there is an evolution that's happening. And I feel like this happens with so many things. Okay, uh, newspapers are being read on iPads instead of in print. Media is dead. <laughs> you know, like people, critics are getting involved with the process and like giving artists more agency. Criticism is dead. <laughs> We're like, really, how do we culturally shift our mindset to believe that like evolution and growth? Okay, maybe it is the death of something but maybe the death of something isn't so bad. I feel like that's, that's the thing about it. And to this question of like, people wanna get reviewed but aren't getting reviewed, I think because we're having this kind of shift, while we're trying not to rely on these publications that have historically really excluded a lot of forums and a lot of people and a lot of people who hold identities that are outside of the status quo, it's harder to see where things are happening and I'll say this with like my artist hat on, if we are still asking for validation by way of the Times, by way of the Chronicle, by way of these like publications, okay, maybe that is dead, <laughs> like, maybe it is. <laughs> and maybe that's not the thing that we're gonna get. But if we start to like evolve our thinking and say, I'm gonna ask four or five different people who maybe haven't done any dance criticism before, but I'm gonna ask them to come to opening night of the show or the second night or whatever it is and write about it. Maybe that's the new thing and that's okay. Because it does, it does keep going back to this question, like what is the point of criticism? If the point of criticism is this feedback process, okay, let's shift our thinking into how we get feedback. There are definitely a handful of people who I am like, I very much respect you. Will you come into my rehearsal process and offer feedback to the work? I don't need to rely on a critic to give me feedback. And if you're an artist who's like, I want, if there's any writing about me, I want it to be totally laudatory. And like, I want to be fabulous in print. Then I feel like the artist can say that to the critic and then the critic can be like, I can't do that. I can't, I show your show and I can't write about it. And then be okay. And they can maybe have a private conversation, but maybe nothing has to be written at right. all. But yeah, that's a really good point. And like, is the critic an authority on anything? Like, yeah. I feel like the people who know me sometimes want my feelings about it because I've been watching dance for a long time. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I can get it completely wrong. <laughs> I mean, I can love something and nobody likes it. I can yeah. hate something and everybody loves it. I mean, what, yeah. yeah. Andrew. So Andrew said people do dance for different reasons, not always proscenium Western white forms, which he mentioned that he's involved in. Uh, and then the question about if critics are shifting from this authoritative position, he asked, how are we teaching young choreographers to make work? And then finding that young choreographers who you work with, you know, you know, feel this need to be understood in a language-based way and that he doesn't feel like he needs a critic to validate him that way, <laughs> but that he'd be curious to know what happened for you and can it be a community discussion? What, one thing I want to say about that right away is that as a dance writer, because I was dancing too and, you know, was part of the, I felt like I was part of the community. So it always surprised me and hurt my feelings 
when people in the community like looked at me as a writer and saw mm -hmm. me as like needing something from me or wanting something and they're getting mad at me and I was like yeah but I'm like you like we're the same and they were like no we're not you know and that was painful and I feel like that has changed since I've taken moved away from reviews that's changed like now I feel like people do see mm -hmm. me as a community member at, that they can dialogue with whether it's podcasts or writing or just having a conversation and I also just wanted to say that I wonder this desire to be understood feels like it started in the 80s um, or 90s. Like that identity dance, identity politics dance, if you want to call it that. The movement away from, and I'm talking right now about postmodern, sure. modern dance, concert dance stuff. I can't speak for the other forms, but because these are the histories I've read more, and they're more of the histories have been written, right? right? Here's part of the problem. But that, you know, before if you were a line in space, like it didn't matter if you were understood, if right. it was gotten, right? Then if you were like a pedestrian sweatpants wearing contact improviser, task person, we, oh, oh, if on the podcast you could only see our Trisha Brown, fake Trisha Brown moment that we're doing, which probably, and I had a nice extension. Anyway, um, <laughs> devil to pay from the chair. Once one's identity, one's, and, and these were often identities that were not being recognized, not right. being looked at, not being read, written about, being discriminated against, all that stuff. To be misunderstood, to have the dance be misunderstood was violence. Mm -hmm. So I'd be interested now to trace that lineage to now and what are Gen Zers, if you're thinking about Gen Zers or millennials feeling like they need to be understood, if that's still part of that identity lineage or if something else is going on. It feels like a legibility question. And what came up for me as you were talking about young choreographers is I feel like there is a desire, and I only say this because I teach in higher education too, there is this desire to complete a task that is understood to get a grade, which is not how art making works. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's just not how making art works. Um, I tell all of my students, if you do the assignment, you get, like, you get an A in the class. I don't care what your grade is. You tell me what grade you think you deserve for the amount of effort you put into this project. Now let's have a conversation about what's happening. Here's what I got as like the instructor of this class, also a learner because I'm learning from all of you. Here's what I received from the thing that you presented. Why don't you tell me what you are interested in presenting? And we can collaborate on this to figure out where, like mm, we're kind of losing you over here from my perspective. What did your peers think? Mm -hmm. What did other people think? Were you, on, were you on board? Was I off, was I off the train? And so I feel like to this question of like young dancers wanting to be like understood, it relates to this like identity politics thing and the like the violence of not being understood. But I also think it relates to the violence of education. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the violence yeah. of grading Oof. young people yes. in the arts mm -hmm. because it is or like anything. Yeah. Like right. who who has the authority to say your art is good, your art is bad when in fact we see in the world that there is space for almost everyone's art to happen in some community of people. So why, like, why are we acting like this institution, this educational institution has the answers for what art is? Mm -hmm. That's a good point. <laughs> That's why universal basic income for artists. <laughs> then everybody can make whatever trash they want and beauty and amazingness. <laughs> Maybe we should just give letter grades as reviews. <laughs> just be like, I saw your show, A minus. <laughs> 
You can talk to me after class. I think you should start <laughs> writing five-star reviews. Yeah, like that sort of thing. That's yeah. right. Well, when I was writing for The Guardian in the 90s, they definitely thought that dance reviews were going to be more like movie reviews. Film like they, reviews. They were kind of yeah. like, aren't you writing for audiences to let them know whether they should go or not? I'm like, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty sure no one's going to go anyway, even if I loved it. <laughs> Talk to us, David. So I'm just going to quickly say, repeat this amazing, great question about feeling like dance writers are still inaccessible to choreographers and that they're still gatekeepers. And there was some reference to the Chronicle and then the final question of how can we break that cycle of gatekeeping and how that critics say no a lot, writers say no a lot. The dance card is full. Like, how do dance writers hold one another accountable? Yeah. I think there is the risk when an artist responds to even if uh, even if an artist is like clear-headed and they're all of these things there is there is the risk to be read as emotional or too invested mm -hmm. because you are responding to something about your own work yeah and we had a moment where you wrote something the artist got upset yeah and then when we talked when we zoomed mm -hmm. i said what i thought about what you wrote yeah. that i was like i didn't read it that way and i and we had like our own moment of like <laughs> support like mutual dance writer support <laughs> i do want to say and i really think this is uh, part of just the obfuscation of professional life in this country of in different fields rachel howard she can't choose what she writes about i mean if we're talking about the chronicle they assign that stuff and they are incredibly resistant and they don't care about dance so, so just know that if she's going to get to write, if she wants to write, she's going to have to keep writing about Mark Morris, pretty much. Very hard to get anybody else in those. They don't recognize smaller companies. They're not interested in other dance forms. They're not, unless it's the Ethnic Dance Festival and they could say something, you know, umbrella-y. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, let's all get it all under one umbrella, that kind of thing. So I guest edited two issues of In Dance. Boomi guest edited two issues of In Dance. It was a ton of outreach, you know, finding people. And I believe you helped too, David. I can't remember. I know Gerald forwarded people to me. I was like, who wants to write? Who hasn't gotten their voice out there? I don't know everybody. How do we do this? And for me, I can't speak for Boomi. For me, it was a wonderful experience. And now it's over. I don't have the platform anymore. A lot of the gatekeeping is happening from the publication. And that makes it, for the writer, hard to get a space so then it's like okay have your own blog or have your own thing and just from my point of view I have like 45 jobs and like I can't do another thing especially unpaid so I'm really appreciating you bringing it up though especially this question of how can writers respond to writers mm -hmm. and I think it also just what makes me go ooh and like uh, and I'm having like physical responses to these questions is the same response I have to being to asking hard questions and being really critical about dance because I think dance gets no love already. And plus, we're so insular as a community. It's hard to be honest. You know how it is. I mean, conversations are happening. People are talking about all kinds of stuff happening in the community. <laughs> and it's very delicate and tricky. So it is a big question, unanswerable. I certainly can't answer it now. But I, I really appreciate having it on my radar. Yeah. You want the last word on this? That would be awesome. Because um, we are. We're past time because this crowd is wild for dance <laughs> criticism. Yeah. So not to overuse Audre Lorde, but like the master's tools can't dismantle the master's house. And so I often feel like the way to change the system is to build our own house. How are we actually like decentering some of these institutions and publications that are held in regard? 
And instead of trying to like claw our way in, and I did, I tried to claw my way into the Chronicle, right? And I published one piece in the Chronicle. And then I emailed the editor and I said, here are seven different shows that are coming up in the, I don't know how many fingers, are, seven different shows that are coming up in the next three months. I will literally take time out of my life and write about every single one. If you will publish every single one, none of them were ballet, none of them were the acceptable ethnic dance. It was all, you know, experimental work that was happening at places like Counterpulse. It was performance art. It was all of these things. And I got a response back that was something like, that's not within the scope of our publication. Right. And I was like, okay, I'm out, thanks. <laughs> Thank you very much. But what I think is so beautiful, and I only know this because I was kind of like listening to the process. What I think is so beautiful about what you did with your show, David, is that you gave these writers who are maybe a little less experienced, and this kind of relates to the way that I curated in dance as well. Like I really wanted people who don't Same. have a huge following of writer of uh, in their writing practice. But there are, folk, there are folks who are either new to writing or just like don't have these platforms these like larger institutions and you not only invited them into the process but like you made it this collaborative effort and then ultimately they went away and they wrote about the experience that they had from my vantage point there was no expectation that it was all going to be complimentary but they had information mm -hmm. you know and so it felt like there there was an opportunity for the work to be legible beyond, I came to the theater at 7.45, I sat down in my seat, it was dark, I like maybe jotted some notes on my lap, then I went home and I click clacked on my laptop and then I sent it to my editor. And so it, like, it feels like that's a way to build a new house. We're gonna keep trying to decenter these institutions and these publications that don't want us. Thank you so much, Boomi. Thank you, Seema. For Sima. joining me and this amazing audience and ODC. Do you have a sign off? Well, on my podcast, I say, until next time, dance on. <laughs> Which now that I say it like in front of people is very cheesy. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds awesome on the podcast. I yeah. gave a conference paper like three and a half weeks ago that I ended with. It was about RuPaul's Drag Race. Um, uh -huh. okay. I ended the, the paper presentation with, as for the queens, I hope that they'll dance on. Uh <laughs> We are equally, maybe we should start a publication mm -hmm. called Dance On. Yes. And write in the ways that everybody needs. DanceCast is an ODC theater production, curated, written, and edited by Seema Belmar. That's me. With creative consulting from Chloe Zimberg and Sophie Lenanger, and additional support from Matt Shrimplin and Garth Grimble. Please subscribe and rate our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And tell your friends. You can find a transcript of this episode and all DanceCast episodes replete with hyperlinks to related content at odc.dance stories. Until next time, dance on. <laughs> <laughs>